Welcome to the MyPersonalFootballCoach.com Youth Soccer Player Development Podcast, Episode 4 with Nick Grantham. Welcome to MyPersonalFootballCoach.com's Soccer Player Development Podcast. Discover all the secrets, hints and tips about soccer player development and soccer coaching from some of the leading figures in world soccer. Here's your host, Saul Isaacson-Hurst. Hi guys, welcome back to another episode of the MyPersonalFootballCoach.com Youth Soccer Player Development Podcast. Now this week I've got a great guest, uh, someone I first met on the when I was doing the Advanced Youth Award at the FA. Uh, he's a sports and conditioning specialist. Um, he consults not only with the FA and Premier League clubs like West Bromwich Albion, but also works across elite sport with Olympians, um, many different other sports. So he really knows what he's talking about. And I think it's important now, as, as time's gone on now, um, I've noticed a real big now improvement in the utilization of sports and conditioning experts in football whereas when I first started out and maybe it was a bit of an afterthought now um, they, they really are being utilized and it's become a really important part of elite player development trying to produce athletes for football um, for the Premier League and Champions League so I'm really excited about that um, myself um, uh, just been quite got quite a busy week ahead I'm going to Geneva for a conference uh, the football development and e-learning conference and uh, then uh, to the NSCAA in uh, January in LA, which I'm really excited about. Anyone wants to connect, just let me know. It'd be great to speak to other coaches out there, maybe directors of coaching. And then uh, March, I've got coming up uh, another camp I'm doing in Edmonton, Canada. So busy times, really excited uh, and lots more to do and some really excellent, more excellent podcasts coming up. So hope you enjoy. So hi, Nick Grantham. Welcome to the show. Morning, so how are you doing? Thanks for having me on. Thanks very much, mate. Can you just give us a little bit of background about your uh, about yourself? You know what, what obviously what you do, sort of organisations you've worked for in the past. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I've worked in high performance sport for about the last twenty years, going on for twenty years now. Uh, I've been very fortunate that that's afforded me the opportunity to work across a wide range of sports, thirty-five, um, and that's from able-bodied to Paralympians. Um, team sports, individual sports, um, and athletes that have competed at the last four Olympics, uh, starting from Sydney in 2000, right the way through to my final involvement uh, in, in a significant role at London 2012. Uh, as well as that, so I now work as a consultant to a variety of teams and, and individuals, so currently consulting in, in professional football, and I've worked in football in, in a number of levels from championship to premiership through to international football and the women's game uh, and also work with a pro golfer. So it's, it's a fairly eclectic bunch, but I think what it allows me to bring, particularly to football, is uh, a fresh perspective and a fresh set of eyes on what can sometimes be quite a traditional um, environment in terms of working practices and, and training philosophies. Excellent. So I mean, I remember when I first started an academy football over ten years ago, the there wasn't really that much of a relationship between the sports science department, if there was any, and and the uh, academy. Uh, but obviously, then uh, through my well, a few years into my work at Spurs, and that became much more integrated, and then really developed now. And I noticed where the clubs I've worked at and other clubs now, it's really become uh, an important staple of that work with young players. Have you noticed that then? Then recently, that 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 change in trend, that maybe the more 
more importance given to it? I think certainly over over the last sort of 15, 20 years since I've been working in sports science, um, strength and conditioning and physical preparation have, have all become an integral part of the performance on the pitch. Um, I think it, it, it go, it's going through a, a sort of a, a growth and a development phase where, you know, in the early days it probably wasn't particularly well received. There wasn't probably great communication between practitioners um, from the the sports science side of of the fence and also the coaching. I think people were talking different languages and maybe had different priorities. Um, my experience now is is that seeing sports science and medicine teams both at academy level and at first team level, on the whole, you know, the communication is much better. The understanding of each other's roles and how they can impact on performance on the pitch, which is what everyone wants at the end of the day. You know, the coaches want the best players. The sports science and medicine team want the best players on the pitch. You want to be with a successful team. I think the communication is far better. It can always improve. <clears throat> you know, it can always improve. We can always deepen our understandings of each other's areas and how that impacts. But I think it's certainly better than maybe five, ten, ten years ago. So uh, if, we, if we were thinking about then uh, academy football and if we, we look at the different age groups, so for instance, the foundation phase, the young players, 8s to 11s or even younger that and that, yeah. what would be the ideal? I mean, when I first started, there was the Barley's long-term player development model. That was uh, the big thing about, you know, that's, this was the golden age. Is that, I mean, I know you, you've spoken previously about that. Maybe that's, that's not really, is that, is that not as thought of as uh, gospel anymore? I think, I think Islam Barley's, model whilst it was really informative at the time um, I think sometimes didn't make intuitive sense to those working at the, the top end of, of sport so I certainly although I was working with high performing athletes in terms of their physical preparation some of them were still beginners really so if you followed that that logical progression of windows of opportunity and if you, you missed a period of training that you weren't going to be able to be optimise your speed work that didn't really make sense because I, you know, I firmly believe even working in first team football, I can make a player faster. I can make them stronger. You know, they might not be the fastest player in the world, but I can make them a better version. So, I think whilst it was useful and whilst it it helped, I think models and frameworks were exactly that. They're just they're just a framework. They're they're a consensus opinion. It's not always what happens on the ground. I think probably one of the more contemporary models put forward by Rodri Lloyd and, and his research group is probably a more um, balanced um, framework that although it highlights that there will be periods of training where the body will be uh, more um, where, where you're going to get better training adaptations we can train all things all of the time we just need to turn the volume up on certain elements. So it's not like you're going to, if you, if you miss speed development at a certain age, that you're never going to get an opportunity to get that back. Of, of course you can. So I, I prefer Rodri Lloyd's model. I think it's a more practical um, model that's that's more relevant for, for current training. So, I mean, but is there, I mean, you say that obviously there's the opportunities are still there later on, but is is there a feeling that at the younger age groups that's there's more opportunity than maybe when you get older? Um, I think you've probably got more chance to influence um, training adaptations. But then if we, if we look at something like strength, it's understanding how those strength adaptations come about. So prepubescent athletes 
the strength gains are going to be primarily neural in, in adaptations. You know, it's going to be through learning movement patterns and skills rather than structural adaptations, which won't come about until um, puberty. So if we look at boys and girls when they're developing, developmentally in terms of their movement and their strength development, they'll be very similar until they go through puberty and then obviously um, physical adaptations will, will occur because of hormonal responses and changes in, in their physical makeup, which means that boys will typically be stronger than girls. So I think it's just understanding how the body develops, where you can get your gains and, and the types of activities you can use to enhance, for instance, strength at various ages. And what about things like agility, Nick? I mean, to me, that's a massive thing. I've noticed um, working in, as a skills trainer, yeah. uh, the, the improvement in, in young players' agility, movement, their weights, things like that. I mean, what's, uh, what's your thoughts on that? Is that, is that, is that an early age to, a key opportunity to, to develop agility or is that the same as across the broad? Across so again, broad? I think it's understanding agility, what, what that actually means. Um, so our understanding is far better now that there's a distinct difference between agility and change of direction. So agility is any sort of movement where there is a decision-making skill that has to come into it where you, you don't know the course that you're running where you maybe start from a different stimulus. So that, that's a specific skill on its, it, itself. You've then got the component parts that probably link to that, like change of direction, acceleration, deceleration, linear speed. So we have to understand why a player may not look like he's got good agility on the pitch. It could be because of one of those un, underlying components. They may not be able to accelerate. They may not be able to decelerate. They may not be able to change direction. That may be influencing the way they move on the pitch in terms of agility. So I think it's about movement, particularly with kids. It's about, you know, and if you look at that foundation phase, just exposing them to a, a wide range of movements that they're going to encounter in the game and even movements that they may not encounter or typically encounter. So it's we often think about agility as a running-based activity but it's it's falling it's it's rolling it's tumbling it's hopping landing um i've been to some academies one that springs to mind is, is manchester city and some of the stuff you see them working with it with the young athletes there is fantastic it probably on first inspection doesn't look anything like a typical football drill but it's running it's jumping over and landing in awkward positions which is what you're going to experience on the pitch as a, as a senior and developing athlete. Do you think then, um, I mean, I've noticed that the clubs I've worked with and I've been fortunate to work with some great movement specialists and also when I visited Ajax, they did a lot of stuff like judo and other yeah. sort of stuff. Do you think this sort of more um, flexible, less sort of rigid things like, you know, for instance, ladders, not, there's less use of ladders now, maybe more use of other things, more, you know, creative movements. What's your thoughts on that? I mean, do you, what's your thoughts on, like, the, what, one, the use of ladders, and then, two, the, how that's evolved into a more dynamic way of doing things? Yeah, so uh, if, if we look at ladders, and, and t typically speed ladders, the, the name is probably wrong because it, it won't really help develop acceleration, deceleration, linear running speed. So the name is probably a little bit sends people down the wrong track. In terms of patterning, so footwork patterning and footwork drills, I think they have an application. I think the application is still relatively limited, um, particularly with, with senior players. I think there's other simpler 
ways of, of chasing that. However, if you're working with five to 11 year olds, do they like running through ladders? Do they enjoy it? Yeah, is it, so I think it has its place. It's just how we use it, the proportion of time we spend doing it and under, understanding what we're trying to gain from, from using that, that tool. Um, it's pointless if we just roll out a bunch of ladders and people get very good at running set patterns because that's again that's not what we see on on the pitch we see that on YouTube and social media people that look great doing these drills but actually probably not got anywhere near a first team or a representative level team um, so I think they have a place uh, I think for other activities exposing children to and, and young athletes to a variety of training stimulus again is important I think probably where some of the academies and some of the youth coaches have gone wrong is not necessarily understanding what the benefit of that activity is and, and how to engage with the children. So I think we've, we've gone from sort of early specialisation and there's a recognition that we want early diversification in, in movement, so exposure to lots of different types of movements. So all of a sudden you see a, a curriculum that has half an hour of parkour, half an hour of basketball 20 minutes of street dance you know and it's it on paper it looks very attractive but it's almost a cosmetic exercise and there's there's not necessarily a huge amount of thought about okay if we're going to play basketball what is it we're trying to get from basketball the the technical skills aren't aren't transferable um, but what is transferable is, is, for instance, working in a tight, confined space, having to make decisions very quickly under pressure. So that's the element that you can work. But sometimes it, it's not being, it's not given enough time in the curriculum to be done properly, or we don't understand what the training purpose is. So we, we have this very superficial um, program that looks great to the outsiders. Oh, they're doing multi-sports, but doesn't actually give... The, the youth athlete anything in terms of um, physical or, or tactical preparation um, so I, I think again exposure to multi-sport and, and lots of different training stimulus is, is useful it just has to be done with a logical um, viewpoint so I mean that brings me on to my next question because yeah, like I said I've noticed that big um, increase in the use of multi-sport and that term and I've seen clubs sometimes they'll, they'll do, you know, uh, a sport for half, half a term. They'll just do a sport. But my question is, um, <clears throat> excuse me, is what, how much work of this work do we, do we have to do for it to become transferable? How much, you know, extra movement do we have to do with these young players, for instance, for it actually then to transfer into them gaining those, those gains or it not being actually useful? <laughs> so that's a terrific question. So I don't, I don't know if I've got an I think it will be different for each player. And, and each squad that you're working with. Um, yeah, I, I'm not sure I could say, you know, it's a six-week delivery that you need and it's or it's 20 hours of exposure. Um, sometimes it may be that, I'm just thinking off the top of my head, let, let's say you went and took a team to, to practice some basketball. Um, it could just be putting them in, in that for a session makes them realise how confined the space is and... and that might give them one thing that they've never thought about before. So they could get an instant improvement off of that one session. Um, but, you know, probably our gut instinct would tell us we're going to need more exposure than 
just one session. You know, it needs to be over extended periods of time um, throughout throughout the course of their career, really. So, I mean, you understand that's probably difficult to quantify that, isn't it? But I yeah. mean, for instance, say if you came into uh, my academy, I've got an academy, and we're, we're training uh, three times a week, like two hours a session. What would you recommend us doing, like, for instance, weekly as a percentage to, like, give those players some really excellent movement outcomes, some alternative outcomes rather than just the specialising in football? Would you recommend doing like a little bit session, maybe, or like once a week doing a slot? Or what, I mean, what? How could we maximise our gains for our young players to really improve their uh, athletic development? I think sometimes, rather than um, having a specific slot of basketball or parkour or, or, or whatever, maybe the coaches or the or the specialists to look at how you can integrate it into the football work that you're already doing, and so that. It's almost you've almost hidden it within within the work that you're going through, so that you know at a young age to you need technical you need time on the ball you need to build build your football specific um, skill set so that's that's going to be the priority I still think that's the priority but you know there may be lessons you can learn from say a judo player in terms of how they roll and fall and you could incorporate that into the warm up so that Rather than just having a one a week, once a week exposure, you know, every time they do a warm up, they're doing a forward roll or they're, you know, being pushed off of off of uh, out of balance. So I think it's what I what I tend to find when I work, having worked across a lot of sports, is it's trying to take key elements from each sport and seeing how they can integrate into the existing sports practice. And not necessarily bolting on a, a, a curriculum of judo or f- cricket or hockey. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I agree. Listen, I'm um, obsessive about technical training, getting players on the ball as much as possible. Yeah. I suppose the other argument that other people would say was actually, you know, because of the uh, bringing the risk of early specialisation, taking them out of the game for a bit, out of football, and giving them some other sorts of. Uh, Things, but I, my my thing is that I think from you know working like like the ball mastery and manipulation stuff, actually you get so many different different movements and force players to do differently. You actually, get those sorts of different movement outcomes as well. Yeah, I think um, everyone likes to polarize opinion on on all, all sorts of topics. So you're always going to have people that are adamant that you know early specialization is the key, and others that early diversification. I think it, unfortunately it's probably a little bit more boring than that, and it's a bit bit more of the middle ground. Um, I think a sport like football, we've we've created it, we've turned it into an early specialisation sport. We probably didn't need to, but that's where we're at now. It is an early specialisation sport, whether we like it or not. Um, so what I think that means is that if you've got children from a very young age focusing solely on football, um, and whilst we acknowledge that the technical training is incredibly important and they do need time on the ball, I think we also need to recognise they may be missing some simple movement skills that we could introduce into their training with that without the detriment of you know we're taking three hours away from your from your tactical stuff. Um, we're just adding it into existing practice. I think that's where that's where it's going to move to the coaches being able to subtly add in elements of small-sided court drills into a game or falling skills or tumbling skills 
without necessarily saying, okay, we're going to take you down to the circus school and we're going to spend an hour there. Um, I, I think we can probably hide it a little bit better in what we're doing or incorporate it better into what we're doing. So in terms of then uh, individual players, so if, you know we get a lot of um, players in academies who get released because uh, they, they they can't run, as it said, by recruitment staff or something like that. So yeah. how can we, a young player, to begin, how can we can we make that player quicker? Can we make that player more explosive? I mean, and what sort of things would we have to do if we can do to? How can we help yeah, that it's, player? Um, it's an interesting one. I I went to a presentation at the start of the year. I was, I was speaking at the football science and football conference, and Nick Levitt from the FA gave a a really good presentation about talent identification. Uh, and his opening slide was was three frogs sat on a branch. I'm not sure if you've seen the presentation. Um, so you've got three tree frogs, and there's I hope I do this, his presentation justice. Um, but essentially, there's one that's kind of clinging on for dear life. There's one that looks like it's struggling just to get onto the branch, and there's one that's sat on the branch quite relaxed. And Nick says, you know, pick a frog. Which frog do you want? And, you know, you look at a frog, and do you want the one that's sat on the branch that's quite comfortable, it's already made it, so it's relaxed? Do you want the one that's clinging on for dear life, doing everything it can do to, to stay in the on the branch or do you want the one in the middle that's kind of neither on nor off and I think that's a little bit like talent identification and that, that's what Nick's point is that do we really know at such a young age that the one that's hanging on for dear life the one that can't run quickly and is being released do we really know that's the case that they're not going to then develop later in life um, and and be a very good professional player I think um you know, clearly academies have to make decisions about who stays and who, who goes. Um, but, you know, I don't think you're necessarily washed up by the time you're 18, 19. You know, there's there's examples of players that, that do make it into first-team football at the highest level that start a little bit later. They're, they're probably not as many of those, but I think sometimes we probably label people that they're slow and they've just not developed yet. They've just not grown into that body. Listen, I agree. I mean, it's, I've heard in the past, you know, they're one paced and they can't run for like players in the foundation phase. And that really pains me as well. But <laughs> my uh, thing yeah. is that, listen, say, for instance, like another example, then, you know, with growth spurts and stuff like that, uh, players players who grow up and they suddenly lose their balance and coordination. I mean, I mean, also for players, for parents, you know, or for players aspiring to get into the program and, and academy football, what can they do to improve their speed by themselves, you know, if they're going to try and do it and how much time or what sort of things would they have to do? I think you, you work, it's always about fundamentals. It's always about doing the basics. It's, it's so, you know, you can find very simple drills, so simple running mechanic drills that will make you, that, that are used as low-level conditioning that are really good. It's working on acceleration, you know, your first three to five steps, and there are some very easy training methods that can that can be used for that. It's then working on specific changes of direction. I think the problem that happens is that's kind of all the boring stuff. Um, what people want is parachutes and bungees and ladders and drills that look very football um, and look great on 30-second clips on Instagram, and unfortunately that's what the kids get kind of lured into but actually that's not affecting performance we, we've just at, at the club that I work at we've had um, several experts in speed and power development come into our club and you know 
independently, they're all saying very similar things. You know, there's probably some basic drills that that we know that that are going to work. And then for the developing athlete, you know, once they start to hit puberty, structural changes and adaptations are going to come about in terms of strength. So we know that a stronger athlete will be a more powerful athlete, a more powerful athlete will be a quicker athlete. So sometimes it's just purely giving them opportunity to, to sort of develop into that body and then lay down some good strength qualities. And we see it even in the first team players that have been playing first team premiership football for a number of years who you think, you know, tradition would tell you you can't make them any faster. Well, I can tell you right now, you can, because we do. Year on year, we can make players that are with us quicker by addressing some of the underpinning physical capacities that maybe haven't been developed in the past, like strength. So you talk about those those simple drills. How many... How often would I have to do those things to get quicker? Obviously, not me. I'm but you yeah. know, a younger man who's a younger uh, male or female footballer wants to get into the game, and I think right, I want to improve my speed. Because listen, let's be frank. You no, know, if speed is such an important commodity in football, it's, if, I can, if I can improve it, why not? You know, yeah. how it's much? Currency. Yeah, exactly. So, how, how much um, would I have to do, and what do I have to do? Yeah, interesting. We had a guy in yesterday, and one of our players said, "How often should I do these drills?" And and the the expert said, "As often as you can." And so I think with with the speed work, it has to be high quality with minimal fatigue. So that's the key. It can't just become a slog, slog fest where you're just doing drill after drill after drill. So it has to be high quality. Um, you can do it daily. We know that speed is probably one of the physical qualities that's the most, um, that is the least robust. So we know that in first team football, we want to expose our players to at some sort of speed stimulus every week, every seven to ten days as a minimum. Um, so I think on a daily basis, people can be working on speed, but that doesn't mean they always have to be running fast. That could be doing some wall drills up against the wall, making sure you've got good body alignment, making sure you're strong from, from the head through to the toe. It could be doing some simple running drills. It may be learning how to um, land from a jump and decelerate because that teaches you the force absorption that you need to to put the brakes on and, and decelerate. So I think typically our perception of speed work and agility work is always just running drills, whereas sometimes we, we do need to break it into its component parts and, and work those. So you could work the component parts on a daily basis so long as the quality was there and the opportunity to, to recover was there. I mean, yeah, I'm lucky to work with a young movement specialist, Hailu Theodros, a fantastic uh, young man. He's uh, and he does a lot of stuff like that, a lot of jumping, landing, rolling, very dynamic. I, I notice what he does. Um, so I've had a lot of good experience with that. My question would be though: say you have, we have an individual who has the, some movement issues. Would you, yeah. would you could you take him out and do some stuff by himself, or and could you? I mean, or set him some homework, and can can you have an effect on those sorts of players? Yeah, I think absolutely. Yeah. Look, I, I like working with an underdog. I love it when people tell me something can't be done. So let, let's make it happen. You know, um, I think what you have to understand is they might not, you can't turn an elephant into a kangaroo. So, you know, but can we make them a better version? So they might not have the capacity to be a Usain Bolt, but can we make them a more effective version than they are? And I think absolutely we can optimize every player, every young players uh, physical performance and their potential um, 
So I think, what again, as the coach, what you have to decide is, do you take them out and isolate them and give them extras? Or do you try and incorporate it and overload it in a way with, within the session? Again, it will depend on the individual that you're working with, how they would cope with that. I think the best thing to do is, always, again, trying to put your movement skills uh, and the physical qualities you want into existing practice and having opportunities to explore acceleration or strength or landing mechanics within a, a structured football session. Okay, cool. So then thinking about then we're moving up to the older age groups when they, you know, the 12 to 16 youth development phase. Um, what's, what did you think? Was that going to be the similar thing then? Would you approach it similar? Or when they're getting a bit older, would you, would you try and look at things a little bit differently? Yeah, I think yeah, my my approach is very similar across all age groups. You know, it's about fundamentals, getting getting the basics right. Well, obviously, once you get to that youth development, we're going to start going through puberty and probably even greater peaks in in growth. So you just need to be mindful about when those um, growth spurts are taking place and and how you may want to adapt some of your training to that to to accommodate them growing into their bodies and and developing that coordination. And, and that might be a time where you, you actually really work quite hard on the movement aspect of it because they've all of a sudden changed stature, they're growing into their bodies and they, it's when they become sort of like a little bit like Bambi on ice or, or the sort of ungainly giraffe, newborn giraffe, that's when you need to probably work with players to re-educate them to learn how to land. And I'm sure you've seen in your experience players that have looked great then go through a growth spurt and you're like what, what's happened they're kind of all over the place well I've seen yeah I mean I've seen players all ages they go through that and they never get it back and that's yeah. sort of my interest is actually a lot of uh, you know, what can we do can we support these players who you know who show great promise and they go through a growth spurt and then actually they never manage to get that hand eye or hand foot coordination back and it, you know unfortunately they get lost to the yeah. game I, I, th- I think we, we probably need to do a better job of supporting those players recognising that it's happening and then recognising why they may be looking so uncoordinated and, and again trying to figure out appropriate drills and sessions that will give them a chance to be successful rather than letting them be, become lost in, in the system uh, because we'll, we'll naturally focus our attention on the kids that are doing really well and it's like oh this, this guy's moving like you know a bucket of wet cement so they, they then start to go onto the periphery. I think we, we need to work on those. There can be some superstars in that group. Well, that's what I think maybe we've, we, we could have done better in the past and maybe in the future to do better. It's like you say, is that those players who uh, show great promise and then they go for that growth spurt and it's like, oh, well, you know, he just hasn't got it anymore. But so how in much... present, yeah, in my presentation on youth development um, that, that you've been to, I, I present some of the um, research that looks at the difference between near elite, sub-elite and, and elite performers. And typically, the sub-elite performers that, that don't quite make it are often the ones that are, are better at the very beginning. So they're the one that we focus all of our attention on. And it's actually the people that go on to become elite are the ones that maybe weren't training quite so much, weren't quite moving as well, but have stuck at it and have grafted. And at a particular point in their life, in, in their mid-teens, make a conscious decision to be better. And I think... Sometimes we, we focus just on the really good players because we're, we're driven by outcome goals, wins, losses. And again, I appreciate the pressures that are on coaches, staff, 
and they want to have successful academies and bring through. So the biggest, strongest kid will be the one that comes through. Whereas maybe the long game is looking for the little scrappy kid that's always struggling because that might in itself give them something that's a little bit special. And I know, you know, listening to youth coaches talk about how they set up games and practice, you know, trying to make it successful for the smaller kids that are struggling. That that's one way, but sometimes that little bit of struggle is probably a good thing. Well, I, I, mean, I think I think I agree. My my issue with that is that I agree that those little ones come through, but a lot of times they get lost as well because uh, there is such a big emphasis on physicality in yeah. English football. That that you know the big boys who, like you say, that those short term gainers who dominate and win you games, they're the ones a lot of times get picked, and those little ones sometimes get through, but a lot of times I think they might they danger they might get lost because they can't. Because it is such a physical fight. I think there's a couple of points I make in in, in the workshop that I that I've delivered is that you know I asked the question like I, well I, I make the statement I don't care if you're a 13 year old superstar like I I really don't I love it when I listen to people on the radio on television saying oh we found the next Messi and he's nine years old like come and talk to me when he's a senior player because there's a lot that can go on like I don't care it's easy to be a superstar as a kid. Because a lot of that would just come down to how physically bigger or stronger or quicker you are. You know, come and talk to me when you're a senior. So that, that's that's the one thing. And then the other is, I think we just need to create athletes first and foremost that then just happen to play football um, rather than always focusing on. You know, I think we just need to spend a little bit more time and and be in it for the long haul and. As the academy coaches, you might not get the, might not get the payoff and the praise, but that scraggy, uncoordinated player that's not quite as good might go on to be an absolute superstar. Well, so I was just I was talking to the the technical director of the Croatian FA the other day, and he said that in he felt he felt in England and France there's too much emphasis on physicality, and that's why the younger age group players dominate so well. But when they get older, they don't do as well because in in Croatia they have more of a, they look at the footballing brain. And then they yeah. try and develop the player around that. Yeah, yeah they, they took a study group out to South America, and again, I've used some of those quotes from coaches out there. And it's, you know, it's allowing the kids to fail, to have problems solving, to figure stuff out on the pitch without constant intervention, and and to do stuff that's hard sometimes. Um, that that's how we figure stuff out. You know, stumbling babies. It, if you if you spoon feed people all the time and make it easy, and I think I'm seeing this at some academies where. The setups are fantastic, but they're too fantastic. Yeah, you know, one of those kids goes out on loan to a Div One or Div Two club; they're going to get a shock because their drink spot won't be prepped for them. They won't be have a perfect pitch, um, and that, you know, sometimes I think we can suffocate with the, the type of training we do. I know we've got a bit off topic there, but uh, yeah. Well, no, yeah, that's what's the term um, I borrowed from Dave Collins. He talks about the rocky road to success. About having those bumps in the roads, and if you don't have that, then uh, then you're gonna ha- gonna struggle to create an elite player. Because as soon as you get to the first one, then they crumble. Yeah, yeah, and I think we we probably see examples of that in all sports, but you know, particularly we're interested in football. We probably see that those examples in, in first team football. Interesting. So yes, yeah, so and now talking about first team football, they're moving up into the uh, the older age groups, eighteen plus, the pro development phase, um, and you know, professional game. What sort of how would you approach that? Your, uh, your, you know, your, your, your movement and next, you know, development of, you know, the sports and conditioning things. 
<laughs> same answer as for all the other age groups. We work on the basics. We, you know, we. Don't, I think I guess the thing that we have in first team football is we we are tighter on time. We don't have as much time with the players. Um, so we were just talking about this yesterday. The academy obviously has through EPPP and various directives. They'll have more contact and more training volume. Um, clearly, once you get to first team, it's about results on a weekend or, or midweek. So the total sort of training exposure we get is a, is a lot more limited. And that will also be driven by the philosophy of the head coach um, and and the makeup of the team. So you, you may have teams that have very highly skilled players, technically really competent and playing in European football. They're going to be very time tight. They're not going to have a lot of opportunity. Um, whereas you may have more mid-table teams that haven't got European involvement, um, maybe an, an ageing squad, and then you've got opportunities to to expose them to, to different stimulus. So we typically will have um, elements of physical conditioning all week, and we either have it as part of a, a movement preparation session before they go out to the, onto the pitch, uh, a specific strength or power session, twice a week before they go onto the pitch to train or within the fitness coaches um, warm up prior to the, the, the football practice so we, we incorporate elements throughout the week of speed, of power, of strength of, of movement um, depending on where we are in the week and so if, if, say if I'm in a, a you know a, a young well like a, a 16 year old, 17, 18 year old or, or an adult and I'm, I'm preparing for a trial at a club um, what 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 should I do? Do you think? What should my training week look like? How do I get my body ready for that experience? I I think I, I again I, I'm difficult difficult to give definitive answers, but I think what we've experienced when players have come up from the academy, um, it's it's probably the intensity and being with those seniors is. I'm not sure. I'm not sure how you can prepare for that, other than being in it. Um, I mean, so, so for instance, you know, say, um, you know, I've got I've got a trial coming up, and uh, I you know, and I want to try, and I haven't been training that much, and I'm going to train three or four times a week. What sort of things? You know, <clears throat> no, I'm not a sports conditioning specialist. So I want to generalise. Yeah. What? How much time should I spend on aerobic or anaerobic or VO2 max? That sort of thing. You know, if I'm going to construct a program by myself, everyone's on you know YouTube and Google these days. Yeah. What sort of th- how, what sort of things should I be focusing on to prepare myself well, for that intensity? Yeah, the, the, <laughs> the problem is it, it will vary so much for the individual because it depends on where the gaps are in their game. But if we, if we had to give general advice, there would need to be, I would suggest, two, two strength elements in there a week. You know, So two dedicated training sessions that work on strength and power in the gym. What that might look like is going to be very different for each individual, but I think you know strength underpins much of our physical qualities out on the pitch, but also makes a robust player, injury-free, long career. I then think you know in terms of your central adaptations, your cardiovascular adaptations, that will be positional differences in terms of what you need to be able to achieve. Um, but you, again, there's probably going to be two to three exposures of, of some sort of cardiovascular conditioning whether that's intervals or whether it's a slightly longer efforts intensive or extensive efforts will, will depend again on the individual 
And then you're definitely going to need a, a speed. And by speed, it could be change of direction, it could be agility, it could be linear acceleration or a combination of those in a session. You're probably going to need at least one of those, bare minimum. But if you can add little elements into that on a daily basis, then then you'd, you'd put that in. Um, I know that's a really sort of nebulous answer. Um, well, I suppose, yeah, it's difficult, right, to, to generalise. I'm saying, you know, for instance, if you're going to say, you know, okay, you just met someone, say, look, I've got a trial coming up in two in three weeks, you know, yeah. how much time should I be spending on the long runs or should I be doing interval training on the on the machines or and you talked about those those dynamic movement things, how often do I have to do those to get myself ready? Yeah. And, and obviously, look, there's no replication for being game fit, us that, but I mean, you've got to, yeah. how do you give yourself the best chance to be successful? I'd, I'd, have, I'd have them doing that, you know, that it would be daily. They'd have daily exposures, you know. So, like I say, two to three strength hits. There would be probably a daily um, CV hit, which would be different in nature each day. And then there would be an element of speed development um, in there every day. And, um, yeah, I, I think what we've seen with, with players that have come up is it's that intensity, particularly on pre-seasons, is it's... Like all of a sudden you're in with senior pros that know how to manage their body and manage their weeks and their training, and I think that's that's a bit of a dark art. It's like there's you've got to be exposed to that, and, and probably the same on trials. You know, it's I'd imagine that there's a certain way to handle those trials and handle yourself within them to to give yourself the best um, sort of shot window. Well, well, obviously, with the technique, I mean, that really drops, right? Once you get starts getting fatigued, I told the yeah. players, I work with a lot of players who are going on trial and, you know, getting them technically ready. I say, you know, they've got to be fit, physically ready as much as possible because if they're even there, you know, 80 or 90% or whatever, you know, the concentration drops and that has a big impact on technique, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, with with fatigue, with poor nutrition, poor hydration, you, you will get fatigue and then with fatigue comes poor decision-making, um, poor technical execution and potential for injury. So, yeah, the the you know there's lots of research coming out now that shows that a chronic training stimulus um, is protective in terms of uh, injury reduction. And we know that a player or an athlete's within any sport, their performance characteristics on the pitch are heavily influenced by their physical characteristics off the pitch. Um, There'll be some experts that will have you believe that everything should be done by football. However, I think that's a bit of a, a viewpoint that's just out there to try and polarise opinion. Um, it's not as simple as that. Uh, so in terms of like training loads, just to talk about this briefly, then just um, for young players, how much should they or could they do? Everyone's, you know, we're talking about, you know, the uh, clamber for doing more hours. You know, what sort of, how much uh, recovery time do players need? And, yeah. And um, what? How much? How much? How much? How much? How much football and multi-sport can we give them? So the ten thousand hours thing that came out is just led everyone down a blind alley. Really, you know, it's it's not even true. Um, it's it's one of those consensus opinion that then becomes fact. Um, and and what that's led to is a bit of a, a results by volume approach. Let's just do more stuff. Let's do ten thousand hours. Let's get the box ticked. When actually it's the quality of work. If you actually read a, a lot of that that research, and it's it's not just about practicing; it's about practicing constructively with intent and making sure it's high quality. So, um, 
yeah, recovery is is very important. Um, again, the structure a week, just off the top of your head, it's very difficult to do unless you've got a specific person in front of you. Um, well, say, look, so for instance, you know, you, we've got, um, you know, got your foundation phase, the academy director comes to you and say, look, we want to increase our training time to, you know, five days a week. One of those days a week is going to be a sport. You know, is that is that okay? You know, physically, that those demands on the player are going to be all right? I think our young athletes have a lot more capacity to do, to do work than normal. I think what we then have to look at is be mindful of everything else that's going on in their life, and it will it will it will change as they're going through school. You know, the pressures that are being placed upon them there. You know, um, we have to take into account all the additional stresses that they're that they're exposed to, not not just the the training, but yeah, I think if you can keep a track of like a simple training diary, just to give an insight into the the amount of training, the type of training that's taking place, and maybe some simple questions about how they're feeling, you you can then start to get a feel for okay, look, last month we overcooked it, we we were doing way too much, it meant too many late nights, and whilst we feel that that extra sports session is giving us a benefit. Actually, what we can, what they need from it is the ability to absorb force, and we can incorporate that into our existing practice rather than bolting on another session. So I think, you know, again, I feel like I'm not giving you any definitive answers, but that's because it's quite difficult. I think what what you need to do is have strategies to monitor what you're looking at, and and knowing your players and knowing when, okay, they've got a big exam period coming up. Whilst we think having five sessions a week is, is really good. Let's just cut it down to three, but make sure those three are, are really high quality. Okay, cool. So thinking about that then, obviously loading, say for instance, I'm a coach and I have a, a team one hour, one hour a week, you know, and this is the thing. So yeah. what can I do to be creative to then, you know, improve my athleticism in my players while still, you know, getting them on the ball and letting them obviously play as much game time as possible? Um. So with, with the sessions that I coach with, with the FA, um, when we're looking at that youth development um, sort of phase, is uh, time on the ball is going to be the most important thing, especially if you've got an hour. I mean, geez, they've got to play football, right? So it, it's then, I think, within the warm-up and the cool-down, I think it's, it's times when you can play a little bit more, like have, have games that maybe superficially don't look like they're related to anything that you're doing but actually have elements of force production force absorption speed agility so i think you can add those in so warm up and cool down are great places to incorporate some of that movement i then think within your for every drill that you're trying to trying to run looking at okay if we broke that drill down into its component parts what do we think are the one or two elements that are really going to unlock the door? What's going to make that kid really agile? You know, what does agility mean in this drill? Is it the ability to put the brakes on and turn 90 degrees? So you can run the drill and then, you know, intersperse it with the specific physical quality, a, a much simpler drill. So it's like whole part, whole. Um, so it's incorporated throughout rather than always being an added bolt-on separate session because I think if it's always bolted on when you're tight on time we'll do that at the end and then the end never comes and it's always just football 
So I think trying to incorporate it into the football is key. Lovely. Thanks for that, Nick. Now, just finally, obviously, you know, there's lots of really keen coaches out there. How can they find out more about the stuff that you do and all that, your excellent work and improve their knowledge in this area? Um, so uh, I, I am on Twitter. So Coach Nick G on Twitter. And I'm on Instagram, although the Instagram's probably uh, less of a, a vehicle, but 0226 is, is my thing on, on Instagram. You won't find... 30 second video clips of me wearing tights and sharp haircuts running through ladders doing parachutes uh, no um, so if that's what you're after don't look there um, but Twitter I'm on there quite a lot and I put up research articles and point people to people that I believe are, are doing great work in sports science and strength and conditioning and conditioning we've also got um, the, the club that I work at at West Brom we've got uh, a, a Twitter which is strength WBA so that's worth having a look at there and we share type of insights we're doing with the work with the first team um, and then if people are interested in, in me specifically nickgrantham.com and, and I've also got a book which I'm going to plug shamelessly The Strength and Conditioning Bible which was, was kind of written for that end user people that are into their sport that want to put in place some simple and effective programs but you know don't necessarily need the, the super hard science uh, to baffle them they just want to get on and do it in simple terms. Well, I can definitely vouch for that book. I've I've got it and read it, and I've found it really beneficial. Just to give me, as a coach working across the age ranges, give me a bit of background knowledge about what I'm doing and you know how can I affect that area. So, yeah, I definitely um, encourage people to get that one. Thank but you Nick, very much, Nick. Thanks very much. Appreciate your time. Uh, it's been invaluable, and uh, good luck. And I'll hopefully speak to you soon. Uh, absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in to the MyPersonalFootballCoach.com Soccer Player Development Podcast. MyPersonalFootballCoach.com's Dynamic Ball Mastery Program is the world's leading online individual technical training program, proven and developed at the highest level in the English Premier League. Sign up now to train like the pros and take your game to the next level. Master the ball, master the game.